Action series of podcasts is proudly supported by Arc Maths. That's Arc with a C. Now, over the course of these nine episodes, you'll be hearing about cutting edge research and its application to the classroom. And that is exactly what Arc Maths is all about. The ArcMaths app makes use of research into retrieval, testing, spacing and interleaving to design a personalised practice programme for each of your students that stops them forgetting the things they once knew. It strengthens their recall of core math skills and knowledge and keeps students systematically practising previous topics so you can teach new ones. There's no teaching element to it, it's just designed to support your teaching through regular recapping. On top of this, there is a brilliant handwriting recognition tool that can even cope with my dodgy scribbles and you can annotate the pictures and write on the working out screen. Unsurprisingly, the app has been shortlisted for Educational App of the Year at the 2021 BET Awards. Teachers can have a go with the ArcMaths app for free if they get in contact and mention the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. It's currently available for iPads, but phone and other tablet versions will be available from September. So just drop them an email at hello at arceducation.co.uk or contact them via the website. And there's links to both of those things in the show notes. And remember, that's Arc with a C, not a K. So, welcome to season two of my Research in Action mini-series where I interview researchers from Loughborough University's Centre for Mathematical Cognition about their chosen areas of interest and the implications for teachers in the classroom. And I try my very best not to come across completely out of my depth. Oh, and my voice is a little bit better from last week, thank goodness. Anyway, episode five features the wonderful Francesco Sella. Now, Francesco completed his BSc and MSc in clinical psychology at the University of Pandova in Italy, where he also obtained his PhD in developmental psychology and spent two additional years as a postdoctoral research associate. Then Francesco moved to the University of Oxford, working as a postdoctoral researcher on an ERC-funded project on the neurocognitive basis of mathematical learning, flipping heck. Before joining the Centre for Mathematical Cognition in Loughborough, he was a lecturer at the Department of Psychology at the University of Sheffield. Now, Francesco is an expert on all things cognition and psychology, number lines, early years maths, and so much more. As such, I really enjoyed this conversation for two main reasons. Number one, as has been illustrated many times over the years on this podcast, my understanding of how children learn mathematics diminishes exponentially every year under the age of 11 that the child is. And secondly, as a clueless father of a two-year-old, I am fascinated by my Isaac's initial musings on numbers and counting. I want to make sure I can do all I can to support him. Fortunately, Francesco had lots of insights, observations and advice to offer. Oh, and an update from last week's episode with Christoph Kipora. Christoph has produced a wonderful video outlining research and strategies to do with maths anxiety, a subject that I know is close to many maths teachers and parents' hearts. It is well worth a watch, and I'll put a link to that video in the show notes of this episode, so do check that out. Anyway, without further ado, let's get cracking. As ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Francesco, we start the podcast as we always do with your uh, math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favorite number and why? Okay, given that all the cool numbers have been taken, I'll go with number <laughs> six because nobody's going to pick number number six. I mean, it's like, it's kind of, I feel sorry for number six. It lives between number five and seven. There are two cool numbers like everyone like number five ai five everyone is party hard and now <laughs> and number seven the, the other neighbor is super posh like elegant or whatever nobody's gonna pick number number six you know like philip like he's a little bit overweight a little bit sad there nobody calls him if they call him they would say oh sorry i meant to to dial nine i'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> the wrong number 
if we get like like I I I thought about this it's kind of funny at number six. I mean, if he hangs, I mean, like if he hangs out with his friends, other number six, he can do that. But of course, if there are three of them, people will get very upset. <laughs> and... <laughs> so that's my choice, number six. You go like it that in the start ex- for number six. Excellent choice, Francesco. I like that. I like that. Okay, number two. Uh, what was your favorite topic in maths as a student? Uh, none. Oh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I, re- <laughs> I really like uh, everything that I can visualize in some way. So I enjoy geometry and I was fascinated by functions and that kind mm. of stuff. You know, something that I can see, I can work with. And yeah, that, that's something that I could see. And it was not too abstract. I, I, I enjoyed it. Fantastic. And final question, um, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in maths education and research? Well, most likely uh, I would be a clinical psychologist, I guess. But I, I've done different jobs uh, in my life. I work for McDonald's. I work for Decathlon. Probably I would I would work for Decathlon. I don't know. I did that for a few months. It was kind of fun, actually. Uh, I don't know. Probably I could have a career there. Nice. Fantastic. Superb. Well, um, you've, you've teed us up nicely there, Francesco, to talk about your career. So will you just give us a bit of an overview about where it all started for you and how you got to where you are today? Uh, it's, it's, I would guess it's not so common uh, um, career that I had in the sense that I was not planning to, um, to do a PhD. It's something that it just uh, in some way happens. I had my, well, you know, like, first of all, I graduated University of Padova in Italy. And um, in Italy, at the end of the degree, there is one year internship that is compulsory. Everyone has got to to do that if you want to become a psychologist. So I did, and I did it. And at the very end, my uh, supervisor told me, well, you know, Francesco, there is there are some positions for a PhD that are available. You might want to apply. And I applied, and I got a position. And I started a PhD actually in a totally different topic. I studied motor inhibition. It was something completely different. But then for some strange kind of reasons that happened to me, I ended up studying numerical cognition. That was something that um, was studied in the lab that I uh, I was at the time. And uh, after that, I did another postdoc in Italy, a couple of years. And then I got a position in Oxford. A postdoc working uh, with uh, Roy Cohen Kadosh. And after that, after three years, I applied for a position at the University of Sheffield. I got a position as lecturer there. And then this great position at Loughborough University opened up with the, at the Center of uh, Mathematical Cognition. So here I am. Fantastic. Superb. Well, before we dive into your chosen area of research, Francesco, I always ask my guests at this point for a favorite failure. So something perhaps in your professional career that hasn't gone according to plan and what you learned from the experience. Well, I mean, <laughs> failure is part of the job. It's basically most of the time is is failing, 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 failing. Uh, I still remember the first paper that I sent uh, I submit for the first paper that I submit to to a journal. I was so upset because it was rejected. It was very hard. But the, you know what? All the other like kind of senior professors that they, they were all fine, and and I didn't get it at that time. But actually, it's part of the job failing. But something that I that I learned. I remember there was like the senior author in that paper. He he told me, well, what you have to do right now is that you have to go through the uh, to all the reviewers' comments and work on your paper to improve it like as much as you can. I mean, keep going, keep pushing it. And like, then we, we, we submitted to another journal and eventually it was, it was accepted. But that's one of the thing. There are many failures there and you have to basically keep, keep pushing. A few years ago, I remember there was a trend that I really liked. There were some professors that were, you know, like when you take a look at their CVs, they, they, they look great, like all these great achievements there. But some of them, they started reporting all kind of, all the failures in the CV that they have. Well, I submit for this grant, I didn't get the money. I submit for this fellowship, I didn't, I didn't get it. I submit this paper, like before getting accepted, it went through uh, three different journals and it was re- uh, rejected. That I believe is very helpful for uh, uh, early uh, stage 
career researcher that, I mean, at least they know that there are a lot of failures along the way. Fantastic. Superb. Right, Francesco, let's dive into your chosen area of research then. So what, what are we going to be talking about today? Oh, we, we talk about learning to count and the children that who try to make sense of numbers that I, I found is something fascinating. Um, well, uh, shall we say, well, Okay, first thing first. Well, you know, while children are around the age of two, uh, they start, of course, they, I mean, their language skills are trying to improve. And then for the first time, they are trying to just make sense, make sense of uh, numbers. They know that there is the counting list. And sometimes you just ask them, oh, do you know the number? Do you know how to count? And they'll of course, I, I do is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah. And, and they go like this, you know, and some of them, they, they can uh, count up quite to a high number but actually you have the feeling as a parent that probably they're they have no idea what they're talking about <laughs> like they have just memorized the, the counting, now this is interesting it's, it's interesting this francesca sorry to interrupt you i'm sorry to interrupt you my little boy is is two he's uh he was born in january so he's two mm-hmm. two years and, and three months mm-hmm. and yeah. obviously as a maths teacher one of my aims is to try and make sure he's good at numbers so <laughs> i taught him to count in inverted commas fairly <laughs> early but he doesn't have a clue what he's doing he can he can count up to 20 but he doesn't know when to stop so if i say um how many of these balls are there he'll go one two three four five but then just keep going and i have to kind of just 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 he just doesn't know what he's no concept and it fascinates me this francesco so i'm 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 glad you you seem to be the man that i need to talk to about this well the the first thing is like uh, well well first first of all something that you have to keep in mind that um when we talk about this uh we are adults and for us, uh, it seems trivial. It seems something so easy to understand. It's not like if you have to teach, like to I don't know, um, like uh, fourteen years old about equations or stuff like that, and they don't understand it. You have an idea why they do not understand that, or because you can still uh, have that feeling when you were fourteen and you were learning this kind of stuff, but you don't have. You don't remember when you first learned numbers when you were between when you were between the age of two and and five, and uh, it's very hard to, uh, as adults, as parents, teachers, and so on, to uh, like put yourself in the shoes of a child that is learning this, this kind of stuff. That seems at the beginning seems so so easy. Indeed, the first you, you have to keep in mind that to learn it to count, there are basically. Basically, five counting principles that must be respected, but the most the most important one are three. The first one is a stable order, that is basically what uh, it's like being able to uh, tell the counting sequence in the correct order. Of course, you have to go one, two, three, four, five, etc., without skipping any number. Of course, if the child skips the numbers uh, at the end at the end of the counting, uh, the, there will be an error there. Uh, this the second uh, uh, principle that I believe your boy is not respecting is the one-to-one uh, correspondence. Basically, it means that each number word goes with one object in the counted set. Okay, otherwise, if you count an object twice, uh, it's going to be an error at the end. And the last one, that is a very tricky one, is the cardinality principle. Principle is understanding that the last pronounced number word corresponds to the cardinality of the set. Sometimes you might have some children that are just counting, and the, at the end you ask them, how many did you just count? And they go, uh, I, I don't know, and they start again counting. Yes, yes. But here comes something that is, that is, I believe, is fascinating what children do here. Um, of course, if you want, let's assume for a moment that you want to test this, this ability, this ability to learn to count. There is a task that is widely used in the literature, that is called the given number task. Very simple, very simple. You just present the child with a set of objects, using some, usually something that children can easily, easily grasp, okay? Um, and you present a sort of, an, uh, a sort of game, of course. So you can have, a, for instance, uh, let's assume you have a pup, uh, like a, a puppet or a dinosaur, whatever that, that is, and you pretend that some objects are like the food of the, of, of the animal or the dragon whatever and you ask the child oh can you give the dragon like i don't know one apple or two apples or whatever and you can observe what the child does at the very beginning they they understand the game so they know that they have to give something to to you or the or, or the animal or the puppet and you ask for 
whatever quantity, one, two, three, four, five, whatever it's going to be. And they just grab something and they give something to, to the animal without showing any counting strategy there. And these children are usually called pre-number knowers because they, they understood the game, but they have no idea about the meaning of number words. Then what happens is that they become one knower. When you ask for one, they give one. When you ask for, when you ask for, that's the brilliant part. When you ask for one, they give you one. When you ask for something else, like two, three, four, or five, they give you something else. But usually, they don't give you one because they know the meaning of one. Then they become two knowers, three knowers, then usually it's four knowers. And at that point, they are able to make a sort of induction. They understand, basically, that the, if you add one object to the set, it does correspond to the next number word in the counting list. And, and, and after that, what happens is that they, most of the time, are able to give you 7, 8, 12, 13, and so on. It might be possible that they'll do some mistakes along the way, but that's something that would happen to, to, to us as well. I mean, if I ask you to count, I don't know, 55 objects, you, you might... I mean, you might get distracted, you might miss one, I don't know, but of course you know how counting works. Uh, mm. So this is basically the, the theory, how, how children learn learn number words. This is still something that is a little bit dispute. Uh, there are people saying now that uh, there, there is such a thing as seven no words, eight no words, nine no words, because it, it appears that it requires a little bit more time for children to to consolidate the counting uh, but it's it's hard it's very hard for them and it takes usually usually uh one year plus something one one year and a half or something like that to to get to that point in which they do the, they make this induction they become cardinal principle knowers and they are able basically to count like in a, in a precise in a precise way Geez, this is this is fascinating, Francesca. Absolutely, it's fascinating for a number of reasons. Um, as I say, first because I'm kind of living this experiment experiment myself with my little little boy Isaac, but also um, I've had a conversation uh, the episode prior to this with your colleague Christoph, and he was t- telling me about animals that can count. So he was telling me about fish that are counting, lions that are counting, and I'm thinking these fish are doing a better job than my little boy at the moment in terms of what they're counting and so on. So one question that springs to mind straight away is and again this may be a really silly question so i apologize but is is this na- is this a natural thing that that student that, that children will just naturally develop this ability to count or if i did nothing with, with isaac would he would he just grasp it eventually anyway or is it something that that, that needs to be taught uh both <laughs> i would say well it, it, it well okay you have to keep in mind that is like for for a child making sense, I mean, like the okay. First of all, let's start with with animals. Of course, animals can discriminate between quantities, but they do not have a, a cultural language as we do have. Okay, so they can everything that animals do is, I mean, there are some okay, there are some chimpanzees that they can learn some symbols and so on. But generally speaking, uh, of course, uh, fish and other animals, everything that they do with numerical quantities is with. No, we call them non-symbolic numerical quantities, basically sets, okay? Mm. Us, as humans, uh, we have uh, language, so we have number words that, that, that are like, it's like a learning the meaning of, of, of number words, it's like, it's like learning the meaning of words, but that's, that's the tricky part for, for, for children, that number words do not refer to a property of the object that you see is a property of the set. So, I mean, like, mm. if I, if there are three apples, I mean, it's not a property of the apples that are red, that have that shape or whatever. It's just because they are three. It's a property of the set. If I have a banana, an apple, and an orange, th- those are three fruits. I mean, like, it, it's a property of the set. So that's yes. one of the reasons it's, it's, it's very hard for for uh, for children to learn but you have to keep in mind that there are 
some cultures in which they do not use the um, Arabic numerals as we do. They don't have a word to say 147 because probably it's something that is not impo- so important for them for for surviving and, and, and so on. So there is a huge, a huge influence of language. Just to give you, just to give you an example of this, uh, we talk about children that become one knowers, two knowers, and so on. There are some languages in which they, they have the distinction between, uh, like the Slovenian, in which they have the distinction between singular, plural, but also dual. So they, they have a particular way to express when there are two objects. In those cultures, okay. you find more children. I mean, for, for those children, learning the meaning of two, you find more two-knowers. And it's apparently easier for them because language is helping them to, discrim- to, uh, to learn the meaning of two because it's something that it, it, it is kind of hidden in the language. You see what I mean? So language has got a huge, yes. a huge influence there. You have the influence of language, but you also have. Uh, uh, we mention like we mentioned that children become four no words and three uh, like three no words, four no words, and then they have this sort of induction. Allegedly, that's that's the theory. Uh, something that is fascinating there is why why is that up to three and four because three and four are more or less the object that you can visualize at the same time like to keep in your in your working memory just just to give you an an example this is your ability for instance if you if you if you are if you have to watch three kids playing and you some kids playing and you want to keep an eye on three of them because they're moving around and you want to be sure that they don't hurt themselves or something or something like that up to three four kids you are able to do that because basically you are able to track when they move around in in, in the space if you have nine kids you are not able to do that because there are <laughs> too many basically so up to three four is is, is fine and probably it's this ability to keep the, this uh, two three uh, like uh, three four object at the same time children with this this kind of cognitive uh, ability the cognitive capacity that they have they can work with these small quantities to work out how the uh, counting sequence counting sequence works uh, works basically. If you want another example that I found fascinating about this uh, limited cognitive capacity, oh yes, is definitely, the, is the um, Roman numerals. Uh, do, do you know, like Ro- Roman numerals, like for I mean, I would assume most of people are familiar, but up to three, you you can use like uh, three marks, like uh, three um, three eyes that are there, like yes. one, one, three. When it gets to four, why not keep going? Why not having six, seven, eight <laughs> marks? Because it would be very difficult to discriminate between seven and eight. It would be basically impossible. That's the reason why you have a switch in the Roman numerals. When it, it gets from three, you don't have for four, yes. five, uh, like you, have four, you do not have four marks, but you have three and then the V. Uh, sorry, one and, and then the V, because like yes. otherwise, I mean, like you have like a, a cognitive uh, capacity that is limited, that in some way shapes your the cultural artifact that people do create. I would assume, well, at the very beginning, people used tallies a lot, but then of course we need something more efficient, Roman numerals, and then something even more efficient, Arabic numerals, that you can use zero to create big, 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 big numbers. Wow, this is this is absolutely fascinating. Now, it's it's really interesting. This Francesco, I'm I'm, I'm a secondary school teacher, and it, something you said early on re- really rings true for me that I I could not teach primary school, and I certainly could not teach early years because, for the exact reason you pointed out, I I cannot remember what it is like to not know how to count or to not know what even something like what a decimal is or something and the things I find easiest to teach are the more complicated areas of mathematics because I can kind of remember a time when I didn't understand that and I can still judge the complexities of it whereas early years I wouldn't have a clue and now unfortunately I find myself as a parent trying to figure out what's going on here and I find it incredibly difficult so um one concept sorry may I jump on this because 
Uh, yeah. Do you do you want to go back to preschool for a moment? I, I have a game that you can play to go back to it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Go, go. Okay. Let's assume. Let's assume for a moment that um, we replace numbers with a sequence that you are familiar with. That is the alphabet. Okay. okay so uh, one okay. is A, two is B, and so on. Okay. Uh, up. I am, and I, I keep going. Okay. Like so, you know that. Yeah. Got it. Uh, now try to do uh, B plus C. Are you using finger? <laughs> if you find yourself using, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what's the answer? Uh, e. Well, that that's right. That's good. <laughs> that's good. Okay. Well, it, it's kind of, most of the people would answer five. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard. It's hard though. You have to think, right? Yeah. Yeah, but you see what happens. Like it's a sequence. Uh, what you just did, it's and, and you are an adult. You have very good working memory, and you are familiar with the alphabet and so on. But try to put again yourself in the shoes of a child that's got to learn this. Mm. And at the very beginning, there is basically no reason why it's one, two, and so on. Could be. I mean, you could potentially teach someone to go A, B, C instead of a one, two, <laughs> yes. three, okay? Uh, so that that it, it, it's very hard. It's something that for you, of course, if, if I ask you uh, three plus two equal five, because it's something that you have memorized, you're very familiar with, but you have years of experience. Instead, children are just trying to, to make sense of it. And things get complicated when you get to 11 and 12 and so on, because we don't, yes. say, we don't say like 10, one, 10, two, and so on. In, in, in Chinese, they do. Uh, so it's like, it, it, it's a kind of a linguistic advantage. But there are some languages that are uh, more, uh, like, easier, like, uh, a little bit to learn numbers. I mean, I, I know you, you spoke with Julia Baumuller and, like, learning German, like, you have the inversion, and that gets very complicated. Yes. And so, I mean, English, okay, it's teens, it's a bit complicated, but we shouldn't complain that much. <laughs> <laughs> and Francesca, where does um I always pronounce this word wrong, so forgive me here. Subsidizing? Well, where does this fit into oh, this? Oh, this is, yeah. is this the my limited understanding is that this is almost kind of separate from counting. This almost yep. feels like some in kind of in, innate ability to to get a sense yep. of number of kind of the, the quantity of kind of one, two, and three. Is is that different from kind of counting one, two, and three, if that makes sense? Well, it's the concept that was is more or less a consequence of the concept that I was explaining before. Subitizing basically is your ability. Of course, if you are an adult, you know how to count, etc. Is your ability to uh, perceive kind of immediately uh, the numerosity of a set, basically without without counting, uh, at as long as the the num the number of elements in the set is up to three, four. Otherwise, you have to start to start counting. Okay, and we can easily yeah. see this in reaction times. If I present you like with one dot and or two dots or three dots, you will be very fast in telling me the numerosity. Like, okay, this, this is one, this is two, this is three, this is four, and basically the, the reaction times are flat. You are very accurate and very fast. If I start putting like six dots, dots there, you have two options. Mm. The first one you can just throw an estimate. Like, yeah, probably are five, six. I don't know. Or you have to start. Uh, uh, counting them. That's again because you, the theory says that we have this object tracking system that most like is this ability to uh, perceive in space and time a limited amount of objects that is responsible for this subitizing, subitizing uh, effect. I see. I see. Okay. And my next question for you, Francesco, and again, sp speaking with my kind of parent hat on here is, is what are the best things to do when you've got young children between the ages of two and five to, to help them develop this ability to count? Are, are there some kind of good practices that research suggests? Oh, yes, most definitely. Okay. First of all is talking about numbers. Like just try to squeeze numbers here and there. Like, uh, for instance, you go like, oh, it's something that we do naturally in our language. We do describe things, but from time to time, we do not put the much of emphasis on, on numbers. Like, for instance, oh, look, there are some cows. Cows give 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 us milk or whatever. But something, okay, oh, look, there, there are two cows. 
just mm-hmm. one there and there are much more cows over there i don't know like you know like just try to squeeze numerical information and there is something that is uh, actually fascinating that has been studied this this thing called spontaneous focusing on numerosity uh, simply put there are some children especially when they are very young like again between around the age of 4 for instance 4 5 uh, some of them uh, I, I, well, I'll explain how this thing has been tested. That I believe it's 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 brilliant. Uh, w- what they did, they show again. There was a puppet. The, you have to feed the puppet, and there was an experimenter in which they say, "Well, look at uh, look at me. I'm feeding the puppet." And the, the experimenter gave a specific number of uh, uh, pieces of food to the puppet. Okay, and then the experimenter asked the child. This was one of the experiments. Um, the experimenter asked the child, well, do exactly what I did. Some children understood that the game was feeding the puppet, but one important aspect was giving exactly the same number of uh, the same number of pieces of food. So there was a numerical thing going on there. And those children that are able to spontaneously uh, focus on numerosity, apparently, they develop better numerical skills. What I can tell to parents, generally speaking, just try to focus on numerosity when you describe things. Don't forget to mention that there is more, uh, like uh, more, fewer, uh, and uh, just squeeze number words there. there are three cows, two cows. Oh, uh, uh, look there. What happens if I remove one, for instance? Like there are more or less, you know, like try to... Uh, not be scared and talk about numbers. That that's that's definitely a strategy that that works. That's great. And um, any any other tips? I, I assume that um, kind of being kind of physical kind of quantities and kind of manipulative and stuff would would they be useful to to have students kind of? Uh, sorry, I always say students have children playing around with 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 things like that. Oh yes, yes. I mean, like at at the very beginning, as as I know you discuss with uh, Corbinian uh, Muller, is like uh, children use fingers uh, a lot to represent n- numerical quantities as they, they age, and it's totally fine. They are they are allowed. They should use fingers to count, etc. But also manipulatives can be can be very very uh, helpful to. And a- as we said before, something that the parent should should look for is to find, I mean, like errors, like mistakes that children do are very informative. Because for instance, you can detect whether Mm -hmm. your child is missing this one-to-one correspondence and you want to be there to scaffold the right, the right behavior there, like saying, oh no, you, you, you skipped one. You remember there is, you have one number, one number word, one object. Don't skip any object. Just align them. Just try to scaffold this behavior to facilitate the the uh, correct counting. That's interesting. That's yeah. As I said, you're just listening to you here. It's it, I'm thinking to my my little boy. I he's very. He seems to be quite good with words. He, he never shuts up. He likes talking. And I think he's just seeing numbers as words. He just it's just something yep. like a sequence that he just says one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, because. Now, now it's like a memorized sequence, but uh, in a while, those number words will become separated, like placeholders that will be filled with meaning, numerical meaning. Nice. Fingers crossed. Nice. Um, the other thing I was going to ask about this, and I don't know when this comes into play, is is I'm always interested in number lines and and what role they have in in counting. Are, are they useful? And and at which stage do students start to kind of get to grips with those? Oh, uh, yeah. That that that's good. That's a great point. Okay. Um, number lines. Okay. Um, first of all, there is like a task that is widely used to assess this kind of number line understanding that is called the number line task. It's pretty straightforward. You have an horizontal line that um, in which there is a specific interval. For instance, the number line at one end, you have usually the left, uh, the left side, you have, for instance, one. And with the young children, usually at the other end, you put 10. And then you ask child to play some numbers to see what understanding they have uh, where this number should go on the line. Okay, uh, 
And what has been found is that, of course, children are able to perform this study. They have a general, general understanding, a better understanding of uh, numbers and so on. So it seems to be pretty consistent. What has been found, and I believe it's brilliant again, is using um, board games, uh, linear board games, like, again, there is this, this brilliant paper uh, by Romani and Siegler in which basically what they did is, is this thing. They wanted to, they, they knew that playing a linear board game, okay, linear board game is a simple game in which you have two counters, you roll a dice, you move your, your counter uh, along the line, for instance, a line that goes from 1 to 10, and of course you make the step and you get to the end, it will get to 10 uh, for first wins. Uh, they, they they thought, oh, you know what? Is this just the the thing of uh, counting up that helps, or is just something specific about having a linear board game that is horizontal? So as control, they did a game that was sort of spiral, it was circular, okay? And they found out that it's better to use the linear game because right. uh, yeah, because apparently in the structure of the line, I mean, like the. The Cartesian axis is a great way to arrange numbers, right? Because, like, when you when you have a number, I mean, it's so efficient if you think about that. Because if you have a number line, you know, like, you know, the position of the numbers. I mean, the position of the number tells you something about their magnitude. It tells you something about the relation between the numbers. It tells you something about arithmetic because, of course, you have the number of jumps that you make moving right or left. It tells you when you are adding something or removing something. So it's so efficient way to... Re- but again, this is kind of something that we have in some way created uh, c- culturally, but it is it is so good because, like, I always think that uh, this kind of uh, cultural artifacts most likely went through a sort of evolution-like process in the sense that if you think about Roman numerals, for instance, they were kind of well for a while, but then when you get when when we had to do something that were was more complex, we had ditched that and we we went for a, a Arabic numeral. Who knows what's gonna happen in the in the future? But it's 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 like evolving technology that is basically evolving with us based on what we have to do with numbers. But representing like numbers visually, I mean, works works. Uh, great for it's also for children that's interesting so um so number lines are that they're a use, useful in terms of counting and they're a, they're a, they're a pretty strong way of representing numbers that'll that'll help children in in lots of more complex areas of maths i would oh, imagine yes yes but we have every time we have to be very careful in the sense that there are some randomized control trials in which, for instance, the one that I was talking about and they found out that playing these linear board games uh, does actually improve uh, numerical knowledge in children at the age. But uh, I'm not saying that I would use number lines forever because that, I mean, there are some concepts in which you can't use number lines. And at a certain yes. point, if you think about it, think about that for, for a second. You have a child that probably starts using the number line as a tool to uh, perform a little bit of arithmetic. Oh, you know, it's seven, then you, I add two, so I make, I make two jumps and I get to nine. That, that's helpful. Okay, perfect. But after a while, you would like the child to start memorizing that seven plus two is nine. Uh, because yes. it's something that should go in long-term memory. If it doesn't, uh, it's going to be a problem uh, later on. Because of course, you can't resort every time to use the. I mean, no one is well, no one. I mean, awfully no one is going to draw a line, then do seven marks, write seven, then plus two. <laughs> I mean, like it would be awkward, right? So um, everything should be kind of uh, tested. You know, science goes in small small steps. Got it, got it. And uh, you mentioned um, you mentioned board games there. I, I always hear just anecdotally that that playing with dice is quite a useful thing for for, for young students to, to to do to help develop their their counting and, and general um, numeracy skills. Well, would that be true? Well, uh, I uh, to be honest, I don't know by any studies that have tested this, but. Um, I would say yes in the sense that every time you roll a dice and you have to decide whether it's got who has got more, for instance, children are they have to count. They use subitizing because mm-hmm. usually on the dice you have the faces. And then um, what is particular about uh, dice is that um, 
basically dots are usually arranged in a pattern that helps you to do the subitizing because it has been shown in some studies that when uh, the dots are uh, kind of aligned and arranged in a shape, it's easier to discriminate between them. It's something that we uh, we do as uh, uh, as adults. I would say yes. I mean, it's like practicing because if you want to keep playing the game, you must count to for it's no who has got more or you have to uh, sum the um, the two faces of to dice. Great. Now, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you, and again, it couldn't have come at a better time you coming on the show here, Francesco, because as I say, I'm going through these experiences with my little boy, is, is the concept of zero. I've, I've always found fascinating as, as a secondary school teacher because zero, whether it comes into indices or algebra or wherever, it, it often causes interesting results and confusion for, 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 for students. But the concept of zero itself is, I find it fascinating when I'm just speaking to my little boy because he he, he understands the concept of nothing. So yeah. he'll, he'll say, there's nothing at the door. There's nothing here. There's nothing there. He really likes saying nothing. It's one of his favorite words. But I don't think he associates that as a number in the same way as kind of one, two, three, or, or in terms of a quantity. So well, what do we know about zero in, in young children? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the thing about zero is, uh, <laughs> okay, there are two things that you have to consider. The first one is understanding not, that there is actually nothing. That is something that, okay, children, when they start to count, it's better to start from, from one for, for them because, of course, they start with counting. There must be something to to count, but something that this is totally a, a, anecdotal. But I believe it's got it's got a, a, a good point there because I, I, my daughter is is five. Counting backwards when she goes okay four, I remove one, three, eh? and then in the end zero. She said because there is there is nothing uh, nothing left. But you have to keep in mind something that there is like there is this understanding of there is nothing. And the zero as in the syntactic grammar of the numbers that you place the zero there is like is holding the position to get 10 and so on. That is something that is that actually children learn later on when they have to deal with the numerals and probably start to write down numbers. So uh, you, you see what I mean? It's like it's the, the, the role of zero when you write the numbers in the grammar structure of the uh, uh, Arabic uh, numerical system and just understanding that there is nothing left there uh, that this that can be I believe like if you ask your uh, your child to, to count backwards and, I, and now uh, is one and now I remove one was ah it's zero there is nothing there that's interesting. So when um, again, sorry to just keep. I feel like I'm just asking for advice how to how to be a good. Go ahead here, if I can help. <laughs> but you you are. I mean, like if you care about it, I mean, like most of the parents are like oh, they they're, they're busy. They have to do many things. We we are just trying to. Oh, if you wish, because like the interesting thing I believe is we talk with our kids all the time. Language is something that we literacy and language like oh let's read some books i mean everyone yeah. i mean more no, i would say everyone but i would say most of the parents nowadays uh, in our kind of society etc are aware of the importance of literacy like reading yes. in your kids and so on we are just trying to say there are also numbers there are also numbers that sometimes yeah. are kind of neglected just try to squeeze this thing in uh, among the many things that parents have to do just another one <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so with them, if I just ask you one more thing about zero. Um, so yeah, my, my little boy, you like saying three, two, one, go, because we always do oh, like yeah. a countdown before, yeah. before yeah. he does something. But when we're counting, when we're counting up, should I be kind of starting with, with zero? Should I be kind of saying, right, there's nothing here. So zero and then one, then two, is that a bit confusing uh, at this stage? To be honest, I don't know any study that has explored this because every time we are very careful with our words because something, just what you mentioned, I, I just thought, well, here, we should run a randomized controlled trials in which we have a group of children that are thought to teach starting from one, another group of children that start from zero and see what happens and blah, blah, blah. Um, I would usually start with, with with one because usually we start with, we start with one. Uh I don't know by any studies. I don't see that as a big issue. Like I don't see like oh, starting with zero is gonna mm. cause big big problem. But I would usually start start with uh, with one. But I don't know any study that has tested 
this specific idea probably is out there and I'm, I'm not aware of so I'll, I'll keep quiet because I don't want to tell things that probably turn out wrong. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, well, is, is there anything else from your research, Francesco? I found this absolutely fascinating, by the way. Is there anything else um, from, from your research that you feel it's useful to share at, at this oh. stage? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like we, we published recently some, some papers in which we show something, I believe, like uh, like a little bit of introduction about that. We talk about like children learning to count, they become cardinal principle numbers and so on. Uh, there is, a, there is a specific task that has been used to test this ability to understand n plus 1, okay? Uh, whether children get this, this rule, basically. It's very simple. You present the child with a box, and you tell, oh, yeah, in this box, there are, I don't know, six uh, apples. Now, look what I'm doing. And then you add one into the box, and you would expect the child, oh, it's now six or seven. That's the, that's the question that you can ask. And you would expect children to tell you six, because it's five plus one. But the interesting bit there is that children, to give you the right answer, they do not apply kind of a procedure like counting, they must know the answer right away because you, you have to keep something in mind that children might perform the, the given number task as a sort of a routine. Like, okay, I've learned that I have to do this and I, I have to tell you the last number, but I, I don't really understand how the counting system uh, works. What we did recently, we took this task that is called the UNI task, uh, was used in, in, in a paper in 2008, Sanitka and, and Carrie. Um, we tweaked that a little bit in which we did n plus one, but also n minus one. Basically, we present children with a box and then we add one object and we ask them how many now, or we, we took one object away. What we found out by looking at the errors that children did is something that I believe is, is fascinating. So, some of them, when you add one, for instance, a box, uh, seven um, objects inside. We added one. They were okay. Now there are eight. Fine. Then we we did exactly the same seven, and we took one out. Some children said eight. And so why is why is that? They say because we we uh, we interpret the results in this way. Some children are performing the task as a sort of routine, always counting up, always counting up. That's what they have been doing forever. So they are like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, even though we removed one. And uh, what I believe is interesting here is that, is this something that I believe could be also interesting for parents and teachers? You want to test your child's understanding of numbers, but sometimes asking these, let's call kind of tricky questions, tricky problems, in which children cannot apply kind of behavioral procedure to get to the answer, but they have to kind of reason about that, if you, if you see what I mean. And what we found is that is this thing that many children, despite being cardinal principle knowers, uh, not all of them are able to solve this task. And those who are able to solve this task, they have a better understanding of numbers, of the magnitude of numbers, uh, etc. So I believe this is kind of interesting that it, it is more complex than we thought. That's, fa that's fascinating, that. Would, would it be a bit of a, a stretch to say that the reason that students often find when they get older often find subtraction harder than addition is that it's kind of it's less familiar students from a young age are always adding things on that their early experience of maths is always combining things that then just kind of they're following that routine they're not as familiar with taking things away or is or am i going a bit too far there Francesca? oh yeah no it's yeah there could be a familiarity effect that that we are more more used to 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 count up but as and this is seems still from my memory is that actually um subtracting is more working memory demanding apparently uh and uh, when we and yeah and we have more experience with with counting up that counting backwards for instance and yeah that could be that could be a reason but that's as far as i can tell uh, uh, about that because again i don't want to say something oh yeah i know there are some studies about addition and subtraction and my understanding that subtracting subtracting generally speaking is uh is actually harder because it's more demanding cognitively that's 
That's interesting. Um, I, I could speak to you all day about this. Is, is, is there anything else from your research that, that you want to share? Well, something, well, a couple of things. The first one is that we actually, we did run some randomized control trial to test the efficacy of this. And the number race, that is a game that was created by uh, Diane's uh, lab in, in Paris. Um, and apparently, I mean, like those are kind of still small sample size, but it seems that the game um, uh, is a computerized game, that the game works to improve early numerical skills in, um, in, in typically developing children, usually around the age of four. Uh, four or five. The other thing is that uh, we, myself uh, and um, Team in J recently received some uh, funding. We have a project that is starting in November that we are going to develop our sort of number uh, number game, number line game to improve early numerical uh, skills. So it's something that I'm super excited about because this time is not just testing someone else's game, but we can create our own. And the main idea of the game is more or less what I explained so far. It's like having children playing a, num a number line game but they count up and down basically so it's like uh, breaking this routine and thinking about a game in which of course this is definitely preliminary because we are going to develop the game in collaboration with teachers Wow, that sounds very exciting. I look forward to seeing that, Francesco. That sounds great. Uh, well, if it's all right with you, then we might move to uh, some reflections from you, if that's okay. So um, a question I always like to ask people is, is what's an example of something important you've changed your mind about? Well, um, okay. Talking about numbers, something that I believe at the very beginning was like, oh, it's pretty straightforward how young children make sense of numbers. So that's something that in my mind was kind of clear. But by studying it, I've realized that it's much, much more complex. Well, recently I have been starting sort of collaboration with some colleagues that, you know, like you, you go to conferences, you start talking about this. And they are like, well, but you know, like I have some data showing that actually probably um, there are, it takes more time for children to learn numbers. And you know, you start to restructure in everything and it, it seems much, much more complex that we, we thought. And specifically between the age, because like in numerical cognition, if you want to study infants, like uh, children usually below the age of one there are some paradigms that you can use and then you usually study primary school children but there is less knowledge between the age of two and four for instance so that area is still kind of uh, i mean there are some studies but we need more and the other thing that i've uh, i've kind of changed i wouldn't say changed my mind but uh i was always aware that uh, as parents, teacher, teachers, and so on, we do have a huge influence on, on children. But something that was in the back of my mind is also the child that influences you in, in many ways, that particular child. And uh, it's something that I had kind of underestimated so far, but you do realize that when you become a parent and you have your own child, that, for instance, as you mentioned, Isaac, it, it seems that he's very... Uh, uh, very interested in talking and speaking and learning uh, words and so on. And something that is you as a parent is the child that in some way drives in you that behavior to talk about more certain things than others. And you don't even, you don't even realize it, uh, the influence that, that they have, they have on you actually, that is, that is huge. There are some children that. They, I don't know, they like stories. They like stories a lot. They want to talk about stories all the time. There are those children that they prefer to run around and and they're more kind of sporty, I don't know. Uh, but it's something I've realized that is actually super important and there are some things that you do as a parent or teacher, but there is also that the influence goes also in, in the other direction from the child to you. That's really interesting. I really like that. That's very good. And the final uh, reflection question for, for me, Francesco. Uh, what areas of mathematical uh, education research do you think are most overlooked and, and deserve a bit more attention? I would say um, there are some things on geometry. I mean, like, I'm speaking, I mean, like, there is a lot about geometry. Don't get me wrong, but I'm saying from the numerical cognition um, uh 
points of view. I would say probably geometry is a little bit, uh, still a little bit neglect, young children. The other thing that I believe is interesting and is a little bit overlooked uh, is uh, the relation between mathematical skills and economics, understanding like how the market works or like uh, uh, get a mortgage or whatever. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are many studies on that. But well, a few years ago, I organized the... I organized the first uh, conference of the Mathematical Cognition Learning Society. And I realized by looking at all the abstract, I was like, oh, there are basically close to zero that have explored kind of relation between mathematical skills and economics. Like, for instance, if you go and you have to get a mortgage to understand how everything works, there are proportion and percentages and interest and so on. So I, I, believe, I believe that that's something that probably we should take over at some point. That's great. Fantastic. Well, uh, we've reached the point in the conversation now, Francesco, where I hand over to you for your big three. So I wonder if there are three either websites, links, blogs, books, whatever you want that you'd recommend listeners check out. And I'll make a note of these and I'll put links to them in the show notes page. Yes. Again, given that you you spoke with all my colleagues and they already mentioned all the numerical cognition uh, uh, important books that are out there, I'll go for uh, three different books that are not specifically related to uh, numerical cognition, but I really enjoy reading. Uh, the first one is How We Learn by Stanislas Lean. Uh, it's, it's a recent book about uh, learning, brain, neuroplasticity, and the pillars of learning, you know, like the role of attention, active engagement, error feedback, consolidation. It's very kind of neuroscience book, but I believe it's interesting for, for teachers and, and, and for parents. It's very captivating. Uh, the other oh, who's one, the author of that? Who's the author of that? Uh, Stanislas Lean. Stanislas Lean. He was, I mean, he was fantastic. Thank you. Famous neuroscientist. Um, the other one that I would recommend is uh, "Make It Stick: uh, The Science of Successful Learning." It's by uh, Brown, Rodiger, and McDaniel. It's a it's a book that I read recently. That I mean, like all those good practice to have people uh, learning and remembering things like uh, uh, retrieving practice, uh, practicing uh, spacing out to the retriever practicing, like having elaboration, generation of uh, responses. And all, all these small things are very helpful, like generally speaking for, for teaching. And also for myself, when I, when I prepare my uh, lecture for the university, uh, I thought, wow, this is brilliant. This is something so, so helpful. I believe it can be uh, helpful, uh, generally speaking, for, for the listener. Uh, the other one that is more about mathematics that I really enjoy reading is How Not to Be Wrong uh, by Jonathan Ellenberg. Um, well, he's, he's a mathematician. He wrote this book, but it's very accessible for everyone and just to find the maths in every day. And there are a couple of stories there that I really enjoyed about the uh, survivorship bias. Or the, the other one that I found fascinating is the Baltimore Stockbroker. There is a way to scam people using... Uh, uh, using mails, there is a lot of prob- probability there. Do, do you know the story? Do you know, do you know how it works? Basically, the idea is like... No, st- no, go and tell us this one. Yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of funny. Like, you, well, when was letter something that you could do? Or you can do that with the emails. Okay, now I'm teaching people how to scam other people. Don't do this at home, please. But <laughs> the idea is like... You, <laughs> you, you, uh, yeah, Dr. Tsell is teaching us how to run a scam like an um, enterprise. Uh, <laughs> Well, you you send you, you send for instance, you send a hundred emails, okay, saying, "Oh, hello, we are like I don't know a stock broker company. We are very good at predicting the markets, and uh, we predict that this specific stock, whatever it's going to be, uh, is going to go up next week." But you have you send a hundred me- emails. Half of them are saying that it's going up. Half of them are saying that they're going down. Okay, first week. Then the second week, you do the same trick because every time you do 25, is going, you predict that it's going up and 25, that it's going down. And you keep doing this for a while. And the person that is receiving the email after, I don't know, five weeks or three, three four, five weeks, oh, this guy is very good. They, they are predicting the market. I mean, they got like four uh, correct predictions in, in a row. I, might, I, I have to send them money because they are so good at predicting. Uh, and uh, I found the story hilarious. <laughs> and but it, 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 it's, that's it's, very good. It's like a way to use mathematics to scam people. 
<laughs> Again, don't do this at all. That's please. superb, that friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, Francesco. Well, I'll tell you what, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I, it's really interesting. I, I enjoy conversations where I learn things professionally that'll help when I teach and work with other teachers. But in this one in particular, I feel I've learned things very kind of personally that'll help uh, with my little boy. So uh, I, I found yeah, I found it funny, interesting, fascinating. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you, Francesco. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. So there you have it. There was my conversation with the wonderful Francesco Seller. Now, I know I sound like a broken record here, but I absolutely love these uh, research and action series uh, of conversations for, for many, many reasons. But one of them is that um, I never really know what's coming next. So just to give you a bit of an insight behind the curtain here, Colin Foster sends me um, a bio of uh, each, each guest and also their kind of general areas of interest. But whenever I ask the question, so what are we going to be talking about today to each of my guests, I never know what the answer is going to be. And that was very much the case with, with Francesco. And as I said in the intro, and as regular listeners will know, I am flipping clueless when it comes to, uh, to, to primary education and especially clueless when it comes to early years. So um, I love talking about things that are a little bit out, well, very much so out of my comfort zone. Um, so it was brilliant to, to speak to Francesco. Now, just a few uh, few takeaways here. The first is, I found it fascinating, this, this development or transition from words to understanding what numbers actually are. So I thought we'd go for a bit of a, a live experiment here. Uh, as I mentioned in the conversation with Francesco, uh, Isaac's currently kind of getting familiar with, with numbers. Now, at the time of recording this, or so when are we here? We're June 2021. Now, I should know this off the top of my head. Isaac was born in January, so that means he's two and five months, I want to say. And um, he's got a really interesting relationship with numbers in the sense that he says them in a, he says them in a sequence like A B C D, but I'm not entirely sure he can relate the numbers to kind of counting and physical objects. So I'll give you a little demonstration of this here. So so this is uh, Isaac counting to twenty in his own unique way. Okay, let's hold it right. First thing we got to say is hello. So say hello. Hello. And what's your name? What's my year? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, first thing you've got to say is hello. Hello. And what's your name? Isaac. Isaac, right. Now, Isaac, what we've got to do is we've got to do some counting. Okay, you ready? Well, so, can you count to ten? No, I want to do. Right, you ready? One, two, two three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, fourteen. 14, 15, 19, 20. Very good, an efficient route there. That was really good. And let Daddy just show you one other thing. Right, okay. How many pens have I got? Um, How many pens is there? How many pens? Um, mm, one pen. One pen. Let's have a look at this. Lots of pens. And how many pens there? Um, Can you see how many pens? Oh, it's falling out your ear, hasn't it? I want Isaac to talk, okay, we'll stop it there, right. Do you want to say bye-bye to everybody? Bye-bye. And you could say, enjoy the podcast. Enjoy the podcast. Enjoy the podcast, everybody. So there you go. I mean, it's an efficient way of getting to 20, right? And anyway, we don't really need to bother with some of those teen numbers. Let's just get to 20 as, as quick as we can. So that's what I mean about Isaac kind of rattling off those numbers as a sequence in much the same way as he'd say A, B, C, D, and so on and so forth. But what I find particularly interesting is the relationship between what Isaac can do there and him actually having a sense of what those numbers mean. Now, I love the terminology that Francesco introduced to me in terms of a one knower, a two knower, a three knower, and a so on. So having observed Isaac following this conversation, I'd say he's definitely a one knower. He's, he's a really strong uh, concept of, of what one is. So if you show him a, a number of objects and stuff and say how many are here and there's one, he'll, be, he'll, he'll get that right the vast majority of the time. He's also 
but I'm pretty sure he's a two knower. He's all over two now. So I'll give you a little example of what he does here. So uh, he'll put on my slippers. Uh, yeah, that's how old I am now. I have a pair of slippers. And he'll say that he's daddy. And then he'll look at me and he'll say two daddies. So Isaac's daddy and, and he's daddy because he's got my slippers on. And he'll say two daddies, no Isaac. And then he'll take his slippers off and he'll say one Isaac, one daddy. So he's, he's all over two. And I think he's getting pretty good with three now, although he doesn't get it 100% right um, all the time. So if you show him three things, there's a decent chance. You'll probably put a tenner on the fact that he'd say that there are three. Uh, but yeah, it, it's not it's not as solid as one and two. But as for four, he has no flipping idea about four. So I'll tell you what he does with four. You, um, you show him four things and ask how many there are, and he'll just kind of look at you blankly. And then you'll start counting with him and point to the objects, and you go one, two, and he'll, he'll then carry on. He'll go one, two, three, four, but then he'll just keep going, five, six, seven, eight, and so on. He, do, he doesn't seem to know when to stop. So it's fascinating that for me anyway, and I'm sure this is obvious to, to, to everybody listening here, but the fact that you get this kind of this solid uh, conceptual understanding of what one is and then two comes later and then three comes later and so on and I'm wondering what's going to happen after four is he going to go straight to five or will he will five come alongside six seven eight nine and ten and, and so on and so forth so I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing what happens there but also I'm trying not to get too obsessed with this I've spoke about this for many years on the on, on the podcast uh, I think with with Helen Williams when, when she was first on um, being kind of a maths teacher and a bit of a maths obsessive myself, I'd love nothing more than Isaac to, to really, really love his numbers, but I don't want to kind of pressure him or anything like that. So taking Francesco's advice, I think it's just talking about numbers uh, as much as we can and just having a kind of a positive relationship with them, I think is the key. But I absolutely love that conversation. It was, uh, yeah, one of my favorites. So all that remains for me to do is thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music you've heard throughout the show. Of course, a massive thank you to Francesca, uh, Francesco, sorry for uh, his wonderful insights. He was a fantastic guest. Thank you to Colin Foster for helping me put this together. And thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in. Hope you're keeping yourself well. I know everyone's absolutely knackered this time of year, this year more than any other year. Uh, so you just take care of yourselves, and I'll be back with another episode soon. Bye for now. <laughs>